Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is about how the way we sleep is hijacked. It turns out humans are the only mammals that willingly delay their sleep. And shift workers are at an increased risk for almost every chronic illness, including heart disease, problems with your gut, and your body never really adjusts to shift work. Snoring is the primary cause of sleep disruption for about 90 million Americans, and 37 million have that problem on a regular basis. And it turns out that English bulldogs are the only dogs that have sleep apnea, and that's because their unusual airway anatomy, basically short snouts and underbites, uh, causes the problem. And it turns out the first CPAP machines for sleep apnea were made from vacuum cleaners, and those were for humans, uh, not bulldogs. <laughs> and insomnia isn't defined by the sleep you lose each night, but by drowsiness, difficulty, concentrating, headaches, irritability, and the other things it causes in your life each day, if you have it. And because I've been practicing the art of foreshadowing, you could probably guess that today's episode is going to have something to do with sleep. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Today's guest is Dan Lewandowski, who is returning to Bulletproof Radio after his first appearance in 2014. He's the president and co-founder of Advanced Brain Monitoring. They're a neurodiagnostics device company that's been working on human sleep for about 20 years. When he first came on the show, they had a new sleep apnea device called Night Shift. And today we're going to talk not about that, but we're going to talk about why so many people don't get good quality sleep and what we can do about it. And the reason that this matters so much, as you probably read in Headstrong or the Bulletproof Diet, is that sleep quality is at least as important as sleep quantity and probably more important. I'd rather get six hours of total rockstar sleep than eight hours of crappy sleep. And we have this, this ridiculous thing we do as people where we oftentimes will say you need eight glasses of water a day. 
But we don't say, how hot is it? How heavy are you? And how big is a glass anyway? So we just pick random numbers and we say that they're good, but we don't also say, well, what kind of water was it? Was it sparkling? Did that matter? So there's all these variables that it turns out can change the quality of everything, but they're just ignored in the interest of simplicity. And when you talk with a real scientist who's going in and looking at this and saying, all right, what do we do about quality of sleep first? Uh, that makes me super excited. And that's why Dan's back on the show. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd like to understand what made you, I'm just going to use the word obsessed with sleep. Uh, not a lot of people spend 20 years of their life looking at that problem, getting quantified things. Uh, what, what motivates you to do that? Well, actually, I started out looking at sleep disorder breathing. We talked, uh, you mentioned earlier that one of our products was a sleep apnea therapy. Uh, it was really, we've been doing uh, EEG, the, measuring the brain's electrical activity for over 20 years. Um, and most recently, starting in about 2010, started looking at higher quality measurement of EEG during sleep because you really need to understand all of the microarchitecture of what's going on with the brain during sleep to get the sort of variables that we're now being able to use to look at uh, the effect of sleep, for example, on neurodegeneration or being able to phenotype. Phenotype is where you have a, a very distinctive characteristic and we're beginning to phenotype insomnia, for example, to identify what type of patients who have insomnia that may be better taking hypnotic medications and which would be better for other types of therapy as a treatment. And you're doing this by gathering medical grade sleep data on people and then doing a lot of analytics on it in a way that really wasn't possible even 10, 20 years ago. You had to be in a hospital to get that. And Every time I've spent a night in a hospital, I can tell you my sleep wasn't very good because these nurses kept coming in and poking, prodding, bright lights. Like it's the worst sleep environment on earth. Uh, and so I, I feel like all that data is junk data, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Uh, so you're doing this, though, now at home with clinically validated devices so you, we can see what people's sleep actually is like in a normal environment. That's correct. So when you discuss sleep, there's really two aspects. One is what they call architecture, and that's where many of your listeners may be aware of. They have lighter sleep and deeper sleep and rapid eye movement sleep, and we have a total of four stages of sleep. And then there's sleep continuity, and that's the part where if your sleep is getting interrupted or fragmented, then you don't get as much continuous sleep. And those two pieces work kind of together to where if you get quite a bit of slow wave sleep, that's good. If when you're on your back or in during REM sleep, if it's fragmented, you may wake up not quite as refreshed. So these are all parts of, of looking at the entire aspect of sleep and breaking it into different parts to say, this part may be normal, this part may be abnormal, and that could explain symptoms. Right now, you've You've had research with DARPA, the advanced or the Def, the Department of Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and what a few dozen patents and thirty two million dollars in clinical research. So this comes from large amounts of data. We understand that architecture, but when you boil all that down, it sounds like what you're saying is that 
people with kids and people who sleep with a spouse are pretty much screwed? Well, not necessarily, but <laughs> we, we're mammals. We adapt. Uh, it's, it's simply a question of what potential risk does it pose down the way. So, for example, uh, there's a, um, the Alzheimer's and dementia conference is ongoing right now, last two days. And one of the studies that they presented was talking about sleep interruptions during the night and increased risk of neurodegeneration. So um, you may have kids, hopefully they grow up and you don't continue to have them over multiple relationships to where you, you know, 20 years down the road, you get a break. They're not interrupting you so much. So there are, there are things that you can do that may affect you for three or four years, but being conscious of the interruptions and the fragmentations, as well as the total mount and how it's distributed. Slow wave sleep is very, very important. You're better off having an hour of slow wave sleep every night than having REM sleep for, for the aspect of managing neurodegeneration. There have been times in my life, uh, especially about eight, 10 years ago, when I used to use a device called the M-Wave, uh, or sorry, not the M-Wave, uh, uh, the Zio uh, that you could sleep with. It was this really dorky looking headband. And my wife didn't really like how I looked in it, but I would sleep with that. And I had nights where I get five minutes of deep sleep. And now if I use uh, the right stuff before I go to bed, if I'm wearing the glasses, the, the true dark uh, sleep glasses before bed, uh, I can get one to two hours pretty reliably. Um, and it it seems like I have to get multiple variables stacked up, um, but I'm not using clinical grade tech. I'm using you know, my aura ring or I'm using a wristband and, and all that. And so I'm, I'm really interested in testing the true dark glasses using the ABM uh, technology, or actually it's not called ABM. What's the technology called that's doing that? Well, it's the sleep profiler is sleep the profiler. product okay. that we've developed for this purpose. All right. I am going to, uh, I'm going to, uh, get one of those after the show and uh, validate how the Bulletproof Sleep Mode supplement works, how the glasses work. And uh, right now, my practice that seems to work is dim all the lights in the house. If I'm up after dark, I have red lights in my office. Uh, I wear the True Dark glasses. I take sleep mode before bed. Uh, and I tend to sleep like a baby uh, every night. And I don't wake up uh, ever. Uh, and I've also trained my kids who are now 8 and 11 to not wake me up in the middle of the night. Uh, and they sleep in blacked out rooms, so they tend to sleep all night long and have never really had a problem after they were maybe two. Uh, so I'm, I want to get more data on that. But for people listening, it's pretty tough uh, to get a good night's sleep, especially if your spouse kicks you a lot or has a snoring problem, things like that. Uh, and I'm, I, I don't, I, I think my wife, Lana, if she does snore, I sleep so deeply, I don't really know, <laughs> uh, which, is, which is a really good thing. Uh, I also use software when I'm traveling uh, that helps me uh, sleep better as well. I'm called Sonic Sleep. So I, I guess I'm a weird example. I'd like to see what my sleep waves look like from a clinical data, like in a hospital sleep mode. And you're the only guy out there who's got that level of detail. So I use, I use good data, but not great data on a regular basis. So I'm really interested in, in correlating that. And, uh, and that's something I think for everyone listening you need to be doing something to know how well you slept. And if you know you sleep like crap, or you know you have apnea, or you know you snore, or you wake up feeling like a zombie uh, the way I used to, then I would say getting clinical-grade data is probably worth it. You agree? 
I do. And one things you can do with the clinical grade data is you can put on your aura ring or whatever else that you're using that is, we'll call it simple or less sophisticated. And you can wear those at the same time that you're wearing our medical grade device to get a baseline. If, if your Fitbit is off by 15 or 20% and you know what the gold standard is, then you can look at the Fitbit on a day-to-day basis and maybe only go to medical grade once a year just to get recalibrated, if you would. What I've learned over 20 years of quantifying various things is that you can usually get really high-quality data, but it's a serious pain in the ass to do it. And that means that data that's pretty good but is effortless is more valuable on a regular basis than the hard to get stuff. Uh, and, and so just like you're describing there, I tend to say, I'm going to work on this and I'm going to get all the data. And then I'm just going to go into sort of background mode and, and just collect what's easy. Uh, but it's, I think either you're a super geek like me, but if you go to bed with 15 different devices on you, uh, just because you have to have the data, you probably have a problem that's maybe related to uh, anxiety or similar to an eating disorder, right? Like a fear of not getting enough sleep. And that's a real thing. It's not in the, the DSM to be diagnosed, but there are people who are terrified of being tired, right? And, and so they can develop this. But if you're just curious and saying, how do I improve it? And I'm going to stop gathering most of that data as soon as I've improved it and, and I am where I want to be. I think that's what, what the people who are evolving the most do. Um, and having a new tool uh, like uh, like the one you just uh, you just talked about is uh, is actually a real gift because you couldn't do this before, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. The other reason is you've just had a new paper come out about something we talked about in our 2014 interview, and there's a sleep position that leads to neurodegeneration. And what is that sleep position, and why does it suck so much? Okay, so I'm going to back off a little bit on what you stated because I am a scientist. So we'll start out. Chris and I went to a conference in Torino, Italy in February uh, that was on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And we have a large National Institute of Aging study that's underway right now where we're looking at the awake EEG and the sleep EEG to come up with predictors of neurodegeneration. And from this research, we found that the patients who had mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's, and now we've added patients with Parkinson's dementia to the group, what they all had in common was they tended to sleep more on their back than, we'll say, age-matched healthy controls. So we, the paper has currently been submitted. I'll be presenting the data in Germany this fall at their sleep conference, um, and it we're not saying it causes it. We say that there's an association, which means there could be an increased risk. It's very early in the discovery phase, but there is good scientific evidence that how the brain clears the neurotoxin proteins during sleep. There was a rat study in 2015 that showed that the, that the rats anesthetized on their back did a poor job of moving these toxic neuroproteins during sleep. And we've just been the first ones to discover this in humans. Uh, It's fascinating because when you look at conditions like heart disease, autism, Alzheimer's, it's highly unlikely that there's a single cause. And and it's sort of like, what's the cause of bread? 
and, and you get the, this scientist who says, well, I baked the yeast, and then I baked the water, and I baked the flour, and nothing happened. Therefore, there is no bread. And you're like, well, <laughs> you know, it's a system. And I, I think it's safe to say, uh, to your point, that no, uh, poor quality sleep or sleeping on your back doesn't cause uh, Alzheimer's, uh, but it is certainly a risk factor for it, and it's probably contributing to the system of it. And that's to say, if you slept on your side all the time, you could still get Alzheimer's. You would just lower your chances of getting it. That's that's very correct. All right. What else do you think causes Alzheimer's? Well, the, the most common factors are the same ones that are associated with sleep apnea, hypertension, diabetes, obesity. Um, and as you get older, one of the other things that happens as you get older, you get less slow-wave sleep, almost by definition. And it's during slow-wave sleep that the beta amyloid is cleared from the brain. So that's one of the reasons why when you were talking about some of the different products that you that you have that could increase slow-wave sleep, I get excited wanting to be able to prove that it actually does increase slow-wave sleep because that is a way to reduce the risk of beta amyloid accumulation that they believe is associated or they that's associated with Alzheimer's disease. Now, we don't know that by clearing it more efficiently, you won't get it. But again, a lot of us, we exercise, we eat in certain ways to try and help reduce risk and increasing the amount of slow-wave sleep and sleep spindle activity are the two characteristics in sleep that have been associated with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, in a, meaning more is better. There was a time when I was, uh, in fact, I, I did this, coinciding with the birth of my second child. I said, you know, I'm really not going to get more than five hours of sleep every night anyway. Any new parent discovers that pretty quickly. So I said, I'm just going to restrict my sleep to five hours. I'm going to eat about 4,500 calories a day and see if I can make myself fat, but I'm going to get less fat than the amount of calories I'm eating, and I'm going to show that different calories do different things. Uh, so I, I went through this time where sometimes I get two hours of sleep a night and I said, I'm just going to do it. And I started Bulletproof while working full time at another company. I put the time to good use uh, and I definitely burned the candle at both ends and in the middle. And on the nights when I got two hours of sleep, I would run a 1.5 hertz alternating electrical current between my ears, which coincides with deep wave sleep. And I'd wake up feeling like a great golden god. Good plan, bad plan. I won't comment on that because I haven't <laughs> demonstrated objectively that it's right or wrong. What the, what the evidence suggests is if you're sleeping less than six hours a night, there are just numerous ramifications long term on um, increased mortality and the quality of life. And again, I, I turned 60 a year ago, and so I'm starting to think about how I want to live and, and the sort of energy that I want to have in my late 60s and 70s and whatnot. And so some of the decisions that I'm making now is what's going to protect me 20 years from now. And so that's part of what I'm trying to incorporate in understanding the sleep. And again, if I could increase the amount of spindle activity or slow wave sleep, and I knew it worked, I'd be doing it religiously. Just like I know a number of people who I say, if you stay off your back, it'll treat your sleep apnea with our product, but they don't wear it. But I tell them, but if you stay off your back, maybe it's going to reduce the risk of neurodegeneration. And it's funny how people 
will not uh, sleep apnea is not important, but neurodegeneration is, and they have kind of a different perspective that way, even though it's part of the same circle that you're talking about. About 10 years ago, I used to make it a, a habit to sleep on my back. And it's because there's meditation stuff I do when I was going to sleep that worked better when I would do it and I'd get you know, perfectly aligned and it, it actually felt pretty good. But I was also sleeping with a bite guard that held my lower jaw forward so it wouldn't fall back and cause me to snore. Uh, and it was because of your interview in 2014, I said, I'm just going to sleep on my side. It, it, like the evidence is in that side sleeping is just better. My goal is to live to at least 180 years old. So I'm paying attention to long-term effects just like you. And I do get six hours and five minutes of sleep on average now to be above that six-hour limit. Actually, that's just what I get. But uh, I feel pretty remarkable when I do that. And uh, maybe I should get seven. I don't know. But I, you know, right now, I don't know what I would, would do without that extra hour. So I'm not doing it. Uh, do you think there is merit to getting more sleep than someone needs to feel good? Well, I think that and again, being a scientist wanting to say, how much sleep are you actually getting? Because if it's what you think it is, there, there is what they call sleep state misperception. It is very difficult yeah. to actually know how much sleep you get, how quickly you fall asleep. We think we fall asleep. We might remember one or two times during the night waking up and going back to sleep, but it's not uncommon to have five or six what they call awakenings per hour where your brain is awake for 30 seconds, you won't remember it at all. It's called sleep amnesia. But those brief interruptions occur, and that's part of what your true sleep is that very few of us really know. And that's what our device will quantify. How many awakenings per hour do you have? How many cortical arousals per hour do you have? How does that compare to the normative database based on age and gender? Are you in a normal range? It's funny you mention that. When I was developing the Bulletproof Diet, I wanted to stress test it. And I went on a three-month extreme keto. This is before keto became popular the way it is now. In fact, it might have been part of, um, part of, of how it became part of the, the blogosphere. Uh, I did an Eskimo-like diet. I ate one serving of vegetables a day. The rest was pretty much pure fat and some protein. And towards the end of that, I was not feeling very good. And my sleep monitor at the time, I was using a Zio, which isn't on the market anymore. Uh, I found that I was waking up a dozen times a night and I had no idea I was doing it. I knew I didn't feel good when I woke up, but it was completely invisible. And that is an example of what you're talking about where I just wouldn't have known. I would have said, you know, I slept the whole night. I don't know why I feel like a zombie. And what it was one of the reasons that I recommend a cyclical ketosis diet because uh, if you are in ketosis some of the time or you're using an external source like brain octane, you have ketones. But if you're just unending no carbs, I think it wrecks sleep and it wrecks sleep in women before it does in men. And I'm hoping that the kind of tech that you've got can help people who are doing ketosis without end see what it might be doing to their sleep and know, oh, my sleep quality is going down. Maybe I should you know, have some starch already and then go back into ketosis so that their sleep is rescued. Uh, have you seen any data on uh, an extreme either carb restriction or fat restriction or anything else on what that does to sleep? The only research that I've seen is work that people are doing on fragrances to try and improve. So one of our customers was evaluating different fragrance 
fragrances to see what might improve sleep quality that way. But, um, you know, up until the development of product, you had to go to a sleep lab in order to be able to get these sort of measurements. And so it just wasn't um, readily available to do these sorts of, um, you know, kind of, you're talking about little mini Petri dishes where if you have the device, you could wear it and get your baseline. And then the next night you could try something different and the next night try something different and begin to compare across those and try and decide, well, this did make a difference. And you factor that in and then make your next round of what else do you want to try? What, I mean, you've been doing this for 20 years. So things have shifted in our culture around sleep over the last 20 years. What have you seen on the front lines for that amount of time? What's different now than we had 20 years ago? 20 years ago, nobody even knew about sleep apnea. Now, wow. the amount of people that are getting diagnosed and treated is so much greater than it was 20 years ago. So I think for starters, it took a whole generation of people to tune in to sleep apnea and be aware of it. But now with all the wearable devices, there's just been this new emphasis on sleep. And um, and it's really great. It's the only thing that those simpler devices have is, I mean, they, they claim that they can do some staging of light and deep sleep. We do have a university that's using our device, as I mentioned earlier, that's going to be comparing them to see how accurate they all are. But, uh, for example, the Fitbit, when it was first evaluated, it if you look at sleep efficiency, which is the amount of sleep time that you get for the total time that you're in bed, it matched the gold standard polysomnography. It was within 10% in only 40% of the people. So what that essentially means is if you want to be within 10% of being accurate, you're a flip of the coin likely of whether or not you're going to get that with some of the technologies that are on the market. And I think that the phone apps will probably be worse than some of the actigraph-based ones, which are the ones that you wear, and they just look for movement. It, it seems likely that the ones that are using a microphone on your cell phone are going to be lower quality data than something strapped to you. And I was CTO of one of the wristband companies, the first company that could get heart rate variability from the wrist, uh, and it's uh, the same sort of technology that's used in the Apple Watch today. And even then, you can, from heart rate, you can determine respiration. So you know basically how someone's breathing and how someone's breathing and how their heartbeats are well correlated with sleep. But there's just one problem. Uh, when using a microphone, you might not get great data. And if you're using something on the wrist, you might have movement artifacts. We move when we're asleep and you have skin tone differences. You have moles and you might say, oh, seriously? Or maybe it's positioned over a vein and it wasn't before, but this can make a big difference for an individual. And so you don't know how big of a difference it is. And I believe that if you're using any of these technologies and you use it consistently, the actual score is probably meaningless, but the change in the score over time is useful. So if you get a score that says, I'm getting you know, an hour of deep sleep, you might really be getting a half hour or an hour and a half. But if you know that when it says you're getting an hour, if the next night you got an hour and 10 minutes, you probably did better than the night before. So looking at that delta, that change mm. is something that everyone can do. And if you're doing it with the lowest common denominator, which frankly is probably a microphone uh, on your on your phone, because you set it next to your bed, put it in airplane mode for God's sake, so you don't wake up. Uh, and 
If you do that, okay, better than nothing. But if you were to correlate that with a clinical grade scan, then you would know. And I'm not sure how many of us need to know, but if you feel like a zombie all the time and you know you don't sleep well and your spouse kicks you all the time because you're snoring, well, you know you have a problem and you should dig deeper than just what you're going to get from any of these other technologies. That, that's my algorithmic. That's how I think about it. Can you poke holes in that? Or, I mean, you you know more than I do by a long shot. So tell me where I'm wrong and, and where that's right. So people listening can know what what's the lowest thing I should do. What's the best thing I should do? So I, I totally agree with you that calibrating whatever you choose as a monitoring device and knowing how it measures up against the gold standard is where you start. And I, and I totally agree that looking at relative changes, once you've taken whatever device you choose to use, and once you've calibrated it to the gold standard, then you can look at changes, relative changes for that. And the only thing you want to do is factor in, I would say, every couple of years, because we're going to age and things are going to change. Or if you put on weight, things are going to change. Now, for your audience, just to be aware, we're not talking about a sleep apnea test. This is we somebody jokingly named it a Zio on steroids because it is worn on the forehead. It looks similar to the Zio, except it's cleared by the FDA um, and has and has published accuracy um, for its act in being able to measure these sleep characteristics. Longtime readers of the Bulletproof blog uh, or listeners of the show will know that when Zio first came out, this was the first company that could get EEG data from the brain. So instead of looking at heartbeat or breathing, they would literally say, here's the electricity coming off your head, which is a gold standard for what's going on in your sleep. And it was this ugly headband that you would wear uh, that was definitely not designed by Victoria's Secret, but it gave you shockingly good data. And Zio went out of business a while ago, as often happens with some of these technologies. They're ahead of their time, which makes them expensive uh, and a little bit harder to use. But it really changed my life to know how I slept so I could get better sleep. And what I uh, what you have now, Dan, uh, it's definitely a headband, and it's got an even bigger bump in the middle of your forehead so I, I definitely wouldn't qualify it as lingerie, but people wear it for three days, so it's okay. That's exactly right. It's just, it, it, the alternative is going into a sleep lab. So let's say from that perspective, it's quite a bit sexier. You, you ever think about doing some red satin coverings or anything? <laughs> no, but we have considered pay. <laughs> the original version actually started out as a silver color. And we changed it in the next generation to black because people said the silver looked like it was heavier and bigger. So we changed it to black just to make it give it a more svelte look. You know, if you could make it look like uh, Jordy's glasses in Star Trek The Next Generation, I would wear it every night because that's just that in my house that qualifies as lingerie. I'm just saying. <laughs> I got nothing for you, man. It's, in order to make it work, you know, there has to be some compromises along the way. And this is just one of them. Uh, fair point. Is there something that people should do, speaking of lingerie, uh, if they're sleeping in a bed with someone else regularly to improve their sleep quality? Well, temperature is a big one. The colder the room, the better. And um, I, I think going beyond that, I would, I would arguably say that um, you know, women going through menopause is very disruptive to their sleep. And it may be just like men with sleep apnea. I mean, we kind of have our different the men in their sleep apnea will develop at a younger age. What most of your listeners may not be aware of is that most women 
will not their their sleep apnea will not evolve to where they actually stop breathing until after menopause. So it's they'll snore, but they'll snore much much less than men. But as they age, they kind of catch up to where both in the amount of snoring and sleep apnea, but after menopause. So there's that that early 50s age for women uh, in particular that they have the night sweats and everything else where the colder the room, the better. Do we know what percentage of women over or past menopause get sleep apnea? They've always said that half the number of women as men have it and the numbers have changed. I mean, back when the first study came out, we said that 2% of women and 4% of men had sleep apnea. Those numbers are now, they've reported as much as 50% if they're over age 50 and going in for surgery. So admitted to a hospital for general anesthesia. So the numbers, they, nobody really knows the actual numbers. It's just the research that we've done in looking at the relationship between snoring and severity, we found that after menopause, it comes on and becomes much more distinctively um, changes in the breathing pattern where they could be loud snores. But there's also a lot in the literature where they talk about um, women who are pregnant, where they develop sleep apnea in the third trimester. And that creates a number of risks for the child with uh, increased risk for cesarean and low birth weight. And all of those are where they didn't have sleep apnea, but because of the weight gain um, in the third trimester, they have it on a temporary basis. What the heck would a pregnant woman do if she knew she had sleep apnea to solve the problem to have a healthier pregnancy? I mean, my first book was about that, (laughs) but not about sleep apnea, but about healthier pregnancies. I didn't know this fact. So how do we hack that for pregnant women? Well, start out by staying off their back. And it depends on the severity. It's worth finding out. So, so many women simply aren't aware. um, And it's preclimpsia, for example, they'll get diagnosed with uh, temporary hypertension, they'll be bedridden. But all of these things have been associated or go back to this temporary um, sleep apnea. So looking at the quality of sleep, looking at snoring, is a good way just to check it out. If the snoring increases as they go um, uh, through the, the trimesters, then they're at increased risk. Um, and there's a number of tests that could be done that are home-based just to see if they are severe. If they're severe, they'll probably need to be on CPAP for the rest of that trimester or for the end of the to term. Doesn't CPAP totally wreck your sleep quality anyway because they're sleeping with a Darth Vader mask on? Um, for some people, it's the best thing that could happen to them. So it'll save their life. So it depends on the severity. Most of the focus of my research has been on technologies that could be as effective as CPAP, but not having to wear the Darth Vader mask. So for example, I wear an oral appliance. I've worn one for 10 years to manage my sleep apnea. If I, for a while, I had shoulder pain and I was sleeping on my back, so then I would put on our night shift to remind me to stay off my back. So the combination of staying off your back with an oral appliance makes them on average twice as effective as either one by themselves. So there are ways that you can combine technologies to, for some people, 
and not have to be on CPAP. Now, a lot of listeners may not know that a major cause of apnea is when your lower jaw sinks back and changes the shape of your of your airways. And I, one of the early first hundred interviews that I had on the show was with a guy named Dwight Jennings, who does jaw alignment and neurological dentistry. And I actually have a square jaw thanks to aligning my jaw. And I think my sleep quality is much better as a result. But he made a custom appliance for me that had a wire that went over my front teeth. So my jaw could not fall back when I slept. And I wore that for a long time until I kept cracking it. And now I I use, I sleep with a a night guard every single night, but it doesn't keep my jaw from falling back because I never sleep on my back. And I assume that's good enough. Is it good enough or should I still have something that holds my jaw forward? Well, I would say that if I, if, if you wore a sleep profiler, I would look at the patterns and I could give you the answer because I could look at whether or not your snoring is increasing with each snore and then stops or, and then if your heart rate is going up. So these are patterns of sleep apnea. There's no reason to protrude the jaw forward unless you have sleep apnea. Because there's, okay. there's side effects from wearing a, a custom oral appliance. You can have tooth movement and other factors. So there's no reason to do something as a precaution other than maybe not sleeping on your back. Sleeping on your back is the death wish. You just don't want to do that. Okay. Uh, got it. And in my case, I actually did want tooth movement. Okay. <laughs> so that was, that was part of my appliance. And, and now I don't need tooth movement because uh, we made enough space uh, in my mouth for my, my jaw to come forward without impinging my trigeminal nerve. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that a shocking number of listeners uh, have a problem with. And, and if your bite during the day when you chew is creating jaw tension without you knowing it, I didn't know it was happening because it always felt normal. Um, that reflects in your vagus nerve, which causes a sympathetic or a fight or flight response every time you chew, which is completely ridiculous. And if you grind your teeth at night, it causes that as well. So you're pretty much always ready to hit someone at a, at a cellular level. And that's not good for anyone. Uh, so I, I, I would say moving your teeth is a different thing. But what we're talking about here is um, the ability to just hold your jaw forward if you need it for sleep. And you make something or ABM makes something called apnea guard. And uh, that's an oral appliance that holds things forward. Is that commercially available for people or is that a doctor's thing? And there's ones at the drugstore. How, how do I know what kind of a guard I should use if I don't want my jaw to fall back? So realistically, if you're trying to treat sleep apnea, you should have a custom appliance made. There just isn't much else available. The The apnea guard that you mentioned is a product that can be fitted by dentist. It is not something, it's not a boil and bite. It's not designed for somebody to wear or to fit themselves in their home. It's a, it's a medical product. Again, not over the counter. I, I would suggest if, if, you, if you're aware of products, if you're aware of mouth guards that, um, that reduce sympathetic drive during sleep, then that's, you know, kind of, that's an, a separate avenue of medicine because strong sympathetic drive was another characteristic that we saw in those patients with neurodegeneration. And it's also ones that we see that have hypertension. So there are certain factors that if you could, if you find that a mouth guard gives you more, what we'll call high heart rate variability, which is good, um, that there is, that you should wear it. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is a mouth guard isn't a mouth guard. If you're treating sleep apnea, that's one avenue. If you're wearing it for 
um, modification, as you were talking about, that's a second. And if you can do it to, you know, reduce vagus nerve drive, that's another one. Right now, a good number of listeners are having some lights go off saying, oh, I want to do this. And I've never had a really clear answer for this. If someone wants a bite guard for apnea or for relaxing the jaw at night, can they go to any dentist or do they need to go to a specific kind of dentist to get this? I would suggest going to a dentist who's experienced doing this. We um, we did research. Our National Institute of Health gave us uh, one of the studies that we did back in 2009 was looking at how to improve outcomes with oral appliance therapy for sleep apnea. And when we got done with all of this research, what we concluded was it doesn't matter what appliance you wear. It depends on how well the dentist is trained to get the outcome that you want. So in most major cities, there's already a dentist who specializes in this. A lot of them are running commercials um, on TV. Many of them are targeting men. Uh, those appliances work great. The only issue is for some people, it's not enough. So w- you mentioned the apnea guard where people use it is because if you have the facial characteristics and the size of the of the neck, it decreases the likelihood that just pushing the jaw forward and bringing the tongue forward will be enough. So some people have what they call facial morphology that is good that you can be treated with an oral appliance. And some people, they're going to be stuck wearing CPAP. Now, if CPAP doesn't work, they're still better off with an oral appliance than staying off their back than nothing at all. I've historically recommended people might want to see what you can call a neurological dentist, someone who's looking at the impact of the teeth on the nervous system, because some of them look at apnea, but you're saying now that there's enough change over the last 20 years that you can Google around and find a dentist who specializes in these sorts of things, which is really cool. And I'll, I'll give a shout out to Dwight Jennings in the Bay Area in Alameda, uh, who did the work for me. He was a very early innovator in the space, even before I think we knew that there were effects on apnea. He was looking at the neurology of this. Uh, so he's uh, Northern California craniofacial something something anyway i'm sure he's mm-hmm. you know, or just listen to the the episode with him uh and i'll put that in the show notes whatever the number was but it was in the first hundred um so okay that's something that everyone can do what about someone without apnea do you recommend one of those squishy bite guards uh just so people don't grind their teeth down as they get older does that matter for sleep and we're talking about now for managing snoring or just trying to assuming that it improves their sleep quality it, it just do we have any data on whether a, a non whether a bite guard that just helps you with grinding is going to change anything in your sleep? So grinding is a totally different world. So oh, yeah. I mean the bruxism is the and some there's some recent literature that suggests that people who brux that grinding are trying to create the patency in the airway because the airway is collapsing. So there's a, in some cases, there's an overlap between bruxism, which is more easily identifiable by your dentist and sleep apnea. So there may be some overlap between those two, but most of the time, and and this is again, another kind of a negative thing is that the, most of the bruxism devices actually move your jaw back, not forward. So it, it can actually, 
if you're getting treated for bruxism and you have undiagnosed sleep apnea, wearing your bruxing device can actually make your sleep apnea worse. This reminds me of the, the home improvement DIY industry, and biohacking has a lot of commonality with that. You know, if, you're, if you're looking to save money and get something done, you know, replacing your own toilet seal is something that you can probably do in an afternoon, and you'll probably get good results from it. Uh, but if you have a, a professional plumber come in and do it, you'll probably get better results that don't leak a year later because you didn't do something you didn't know how to do. And we're at this point with our, our own biology where we have the ability to say, well, I'm going to try a bike guard because it's going to cost me 20 bucks or 50 bucks or 100 bucks. And if I go get a sleep study, it's going to cost me a couple thousand dollars and it's going to be in a hospital where I wouldn't sleep anyway. Uh, or you know, I'm going to spend huge amounts of money and see if it's insurable and spend eight hours with my annoying insurance company saying no to something that they should say yes to. And at the end of the day, uh, a lot of us just can't afford some of the medical interventions. So I, I'm a huge fan of doing something to see if it works, uh, but knowing full well you may need to escalate if it doesn't work. It doesn't mean that, that there's, no, uh, there's no meat on the bone. It just may mean that, well, you didn't do a very good job because you're not an expert. And, and it's over time, as we start paying attention to our own biology, to our own sleep quality, uh, to all these different little things, saying, oh, wait, maybe that matters and maybe I have control of it. And then escalating just to the level where you get results so you don't end up going broke paying doctors, which I almost did, frankly. I spent, well, at, at this point, a million dollars. But when I started the blog, I spent $300,000 in 15 years doing all kinds of lab tests and interventions and everything possible to reverse all sorts of bad stuff going on in my biology. And now I'm performing way beyond what I would think. But I've also been blessed to be able to go see some of the world's very best in almost every specialty uh, in order to learn the details so I could share them on the show. So I just, I, I don't want people listening to feel that they're going to solve all their problems with a $50 appliance. But I also want people to feel that, wow, maybe that's a place to start and see if it changes my life. And if it does, maybe you should double down on that instead of just doing something else. Do you like that mindset around, well, try it and see it is self-experimenting. Okay here. So I'll throw a couple of, um, so I, I think, I, I like the, the concept that you have. The two things I'd like to just add to it is that home sleep apnea tests are now only two, $300. So you, it, it's okay. not, you don't have to go to the lab. You can do it in your home. They're far less expensive now than they were five years ago. So if you're a snorer, the likelihood of you having sleep apnea, I'll put it 50, 60%. It's just age. You snore when you're long, young, and as you get older, the snoring, the airway, the muscles are not able to keep the airway open. It's highly likely that you're going to develop some level of sleep disorder breathing. So find out, get a baseline, find out where you're at. If you have it, there are, and you're, you're talking about uh, over-the-counter appliances, there are some over-the-counter appliances that are more expensive. They're $100, $120, and they adjust. And if you're going to choose uh, an inexpensive inexpensive mouth guard, choose one of the more expensive ones of the inexpensive over-the-counters. There's one SnoreRx, for example, that adjusts 10 millimeters. And that's, you know, can allow you, as opposed to some of the, the $20 or $30 ones, those are just going to be so uncomfortable that you're going to throw it away and it'll be one idea that you're going to kick down the road and forget about it because you had a bad experience. Uh, got it. 
Uh, it's a it's a it's the wild west of biohacking these days, um, and I think it's really cool because people who even just do a few things are going to see some benefits in their quality of life, and all of a sudden you have more energy, and then you can use that energy to either have more improvements or just to do stuff you care about. Um, but I'm I'm really looking forward to the day that's coming pretty soon where we have so much data that the guesswork that a lot of us are doing goes away. And and to that point, uh, one of the things I, I think uh, you have 10,000 data points, sessions from healthy and impaired populations where you look at their brains and say, you know, what's what's going on? Or is this person likely to get Alzheimer's? So instead of trying to find a, a blood biomarker or something, which hasn't proven to be that effective, you can say, well, do you have the electrical signal that no one would be able to detect if you looked at one brain. But if you look at 10,000 brains over 10 years, all of a sudden you say, oh, now we've got the data. I mean, do you think we're going to get there to the point where you just slap some electrodes on your head, sleep for a night, and say, oh, wow, you know, you're totally screwed. Uh, you got to do a lot versus you're totally good? I, I mean, how, well, actually, not even that. How far away from that are we is, is a better well, question. Well, we are moving as quickly. Our company is where um, the work that we're doing, I mentioned that National Institute of Aging study, one of the biggest drawbacks as big pharma are trying to develop treatments for the dementias is that, you know, Parkinson's versus Alzheimer's versus Lewy body versus mild cognitive impairment, it's difficult to distinguish which of those problems, cognitive problems, you which bucket do you fall in until you're well along the way. So the concept is, is early identification, and it would be a little bit like having a colonoscopy or a mammogram where you would go in and once a year you'd get your brain tested to see where are you. If there's a family history of Alzheimer's, for example, it's quite likely that you're genetically predisposed. The question is, is it progressing at a faster rate or is it stable? So we don't want to scare people, but being able to characterize them properly. So somebody thinks they may have Alzheimer's and it's actually Parkinson's, then the pathway and the potential drugs that might be coming uh, that are in phase three clinical trials right now, in one case, there may be something promising on the horizon and the other one, no, not yet. But in if you're already at stage 12 before they finally figure out what it is, it's too late. So the idea is finding out early and then doing the sorts of things like exercise and diet to try and kick that can down the road. Tell me every single thing you do to make your sleep really good. I don't focus on my sleep. So I, I, I do stupid things <laughs> like I drink probably too much wine every night before I go to bed, which isn't necessarily good for quality sleep, but I choose to. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, alcohol does trash your sleep. Even a glass of wine, you will not sleep as deeply. Uh, that, that's true. That, that's correct. Now I can say that I've monitored it and I've looked at it and I can say that, okay, I really can't drink a bottle of wine and get a good night's sleep, but a glass or two, a few hours before bed doesn't seem to affect me that much. I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm 60 now. The amount of slow wave sleep that I'm getting that meets the what they call the clinical criteria slow wave sleep is less, but I'm looking at my spindle activity. I'm looking at how many sleep spindles am I getting because that's another way of protecting the brain. It, 
I've actually noticed a very big difference in my sleep quality based on the quality and purity of the wine that I drink. Um, bulletproof.com slash wine, I think, leads to uh, the the company that makes the cleanest wine that I've seen, if that URL still works, um, Dry Farm Wines. And uh, I, I definitely notice if I drink wine that tastes good, but afterwards I get kind of groggy, drowsy from a glass of it, it's just wine that had either glyphosate or, or mycotoxins in it. And then you, I don't sleep as well from that. And there's other wines where I can have a glass of it and I feel pretty normal. So there, there could be even variability between the type of wine you drink and your sleep quality. And, and you know, what you eat for dinner can affect your sleep quality. So you could always worry about being more perfect. But in your case, okay, so you drink wine, which is a negative thing. But what are the positive things? You, you mentioned temperature. Do you sleep in a refrigerator? Uh, how, how cold is your room? It's, well, we're, we're in wonderful San Diego. You know, the house we're in has no air conditioning, but I got the wind blowing in off of the ocean. So it's, I keep it cold and, and as cold as I can in the summer. Last night, the fan was going because we don't have AC. My only point was that colder is better for getting good quality sleep. I, I think the choice of a bed and a pillow, the type of mattress um, I was on a mattress for several years and trashed both of my shoulders until I finally spent the money and got the type of mattress that allowed me to stay, uh, to be able to sleep very, very comfortably on the left and right side. And the height of the pillow is also just as important. So these, these start getting into um, uh, ergonomic factors, but it does make a difference on how you physically feel in the morning. I mean, when my shoulders are trashed because I have osteoarthritis in both shoulders. I, if I wake up and I'm in pain in the middle of the night, I'm not going to feel as good that if I am uh, wake up and feel good. What's better, soft or hard mattresses? I think it depends. Uh, if somebody sleeps on their stomach, if they sleep prone, you generally need a firmer mattress. If you sleep on your side, you need a softer mattress. But the evolution of mattresses, the one that I recently got, I can't remember the brand, but it allows me to sleep on my side or my stomach. It provides full support. It was just expensive, but it was worth the investment because you think about it, you're spending a third of every day or thereabouts. You may be sleep. You may be a quarter of every day of your day, but a third of every one of my days <laughs> is, you know, in this structure that is trying to make sure that I stay healthy for a very, very long time. I, I read some research uh, a while back that looked at what traditional cultures did for sleep, like sleep positions, sleep firmness, and pretty much if you were lucky, you slept on some crumbled up leaves for most of human history. So I started sleeping on a closed cell, one inch piece of foam, rock hard, uh, just on, on a floor. And for the first week, everything hurt. And I thought this was dumb, like cavemen didn't have science. Uh, but after a week or two, I actually started feeling really good and so quite often um, I will do that and I have a, an exceptionally nice mattress too. And so I will sleep on that some of the times, but I find I get really weirdly good sleep from sleeping on, you know, a rock hard surface uh, where the, the body seems to adjust to that after a little while. And I, I find that I have the, the least back pain when I sleep on something super firm, but it's only because my body's trained for that. And so I, I wouldn't recommend that for everyone, but uh, um, from an ergonomic perspective, uh, you may have something here because you look at airwaves or airways. I'm six, four, uh, I'm around 212 pounds or something now. And so if, if I lay on my side 
with a normal pillow, my head tips very substantially because pillows suck. So I end up having to get two substantial pillows. I put them in the same pillowcase that will hold my head up some, so it's still straight if I sleep on my side. And until I started putting two pillows under my head, I would always have a sore neck. And so I feel like I've become this obsessive sleeper where I want my head to be in alignment with my spine when I sleep. But this is not on my back, it's on my side. Is having your head tipped really far to one side going to contribute to apnea or poor quality sleep, or is that just a neck pain issue? Well, it's it's not going to affect apnea, but it is a neck pain issue that affects sleep quality. So they're, it's still going to be wrapped in that same circle we're talking about. I notice the same thing when I when I go out on, on business trips and I'm in a hotel one night and they have nice pillows and my head's nicely aligned and I go to the next one and they're not and my shoulders are affected, my sleep quality is affected and it's, it is related to the pillow. I get what you're saying. I, I sleep with two pillows, one that I pull out and use uh, more when I'm on my stomach and then I tuck it in the other one and that's what gets my head to the same position you're describing for sleeping on my side. Beautiful. I've got one more question for you. And you answered it in your last interview, but you don't remember your answers, I don't think, unless you you prepped ahead of time. If someone came to you tomorrow, Dan, and said, I want to perform better at everything I do as a human being, what three pieces of advice would you offer them? It doesn't have to be from your from your research on sleep unless you think it, it merits that level. That three most important things you've learned in your life where people want to you know, be leaders in their fields. Meditate or be mindful. Okay. Get a good night's sleep and show some compassion. Beautiful. Now, for reference, last time you said find out if you have apnea and stay curious. So there you go. We got three entirely different answers over just a, a four year. As I said, I you know I'm, <laughs> I'm getting older. I'm thinking about <laughs> thinking about life differently than I did then. Uh, awesome. And that's a sign of a of an active brain when you continue to evolve what's important. Uh, thank you for being on uh, Bulletproof Radio. And where can people find out more about all the different things you're doing? You have six different sleep hacking technologies you've worked with. Is there a place to go? So we do have our website is advancedbrainmonitoring.com. There's information okay. there. Um, we talk quite a bit about um, if people wanted to have that diagnostic quality study. One of our customers is a company called Virtuox, and they're based in in Florida, um, in South Florida. And they could, they will provide a service. Well, they'll have our device dropped off at your home where you can do three nights um, wearing it under any conditions you want to get this sort of diagnostic quality study that we talked about. Um, when we spoke back in 2014, we did not have this service option available. We do now. So this is a way for people to get a clinical grade, hospital grade sleep study at home over three nights. And you know, maybe have your cup of coffee after two o'clock the way I tell you not to and just see how it wrecks your sleep. Uh, or <laughs> or drink bad uh, wine. <laughs> yeah, drink drink bad wine or... Uh, what I'm going to use this test for uh, when I get it is I'm going to be looking at the Bulletproof Sleep Mode and the True Dark uh, Twilight Glasses, the the patented set of filters. I, I already know from my my Aura Ring that I'm getting twice the deep sleep, but I want to see the clinical grade difference between doing it and not doing it. So I may have to get two of them so I can get six nights sleep for all of my experiments. But 
it's a it's a cool idea. All right. Well, we can we can send it back and forth, and you can do first. I also want to see how well your aura ring is actually picking up deep sleep. That'll be another interesting one. It will be. Dan, thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio. Keep hacking sleep. It's one of those things that will improve the quality of the world. And thanks for all you do. Thank you very much. If you liked today's episode, you know what to do. Go to bulletproof.com slash iTunes, and that'll take you right to Apple's website where you can take maybe five seconds to leave a five-star review that says, these kinds of shows that give you actionable advice on how you can have more energy and do more of the things you care about, uh, that's worth your time. And if you would say thanks by doing that, I'll say thanks in advance for doing it. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.